police murder of uh, Jamar Clark. And I'm very, you know, proud of the comrades and uh, everyone in the Minneapolis um, that are taking a stand against this uh, police terrorism and genocide. Um, I mean, just the first night, there were two police cruisers that were damaged, a precinct was damaged, uh, broken windows, has been spray painted on, there's been constant confrontations, you know, with uh, the community and the police. And as far as I know, uh, at least 51 people have been locked up so far in Minneapolis. I know that there was action this week in Cleveland, um, uh, also dealing with police terrorism and genocide associated to the anniversary of uh, the murder of uh, Tamir Rice. Um, so those are some of the things that, you know, is happening um, in the States, as well as, uh, you know, I'd have to mention that um, over this past week has uh, been actions uh, regarding um, the murders of uh, trans people as well. Um, so there's there were different actions, and I know um, activists and organizers in different parts around the country um, have been locked up for their actions and activities. Um, hey, I, it seems like I remember um, seeing something on television because I don't watch a lot of television, so mm -hmm. the little bit I do watch, I do tend to remember certain things, but I remember some trans activists of color. Uh, black look like they were black to me, and uh, but they were confronting Caitlyn uh, Jenner, and I was saying mm -hmm. to myself, you know, uh, I was saying like, you know, that's still a white conservative on the inside. Uh, so I, yeah, I saw that, and they were bringing up the fact that again, you know, uh, the issue of uh, how people are being murdered in the street in their community, and uh, you know. Um, the authorities don't even, you know, uh, put too much uh, resources behind, you know, getting justice or trying to implement justice. So, but I saw that. Did you see that? Uh, yeah, it was some time ago. Was it? So I guess they would just read. No, this was. This is something new. Now, I know the first one you're oh, okay. talking about. Then I might have missed it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and um, so, yeah, it's a lot of stuff going on here, but also right, there's also some environmental work that's been happening, you know, around the country and uh, different sacred sites and uh, people fighting against, um, you know, um, the the raping of the planet um, and, and eco warriors. So it's a, it's a lot of the work that's going on right now. Um, and of course, fronts. right. Right, and I'm and I'm also hearing about um, constant, you know, um, death of uh, Palestinian activists and or incarceration of, uh, you know, youth and, uh, you know, we've we've shared um, the story of uh, Tamara, um, so there's still a lot of things happening, ongoing. Well, um, this is what's on our itinerary for tonight. Um, tonight, we will be re-airing a portion of a press conference that took place about a month ago, but a lot of people don't know, but it was uh, 11.99, I guess that's their number, 11.99 Healthcare Workers Union in New York, and um, 
a lot of people, I guess these were healthcare workers, people that worked either for the jails, the state, or working for these private, you know, uh, contractors and whatnot. But those people are also being, you know, they had to come in contact with the prisoners and whatnot. And, you know, they had a press conference and they were talking about Momia Abu Jamal's case, you know, longtime USL political prisoner. And, but, you know, and hepatitis C and the uh, withholding of, of treatment. We talked about that last week with uh, Brett Grote, you know, in the Abolitionist Law Center of uh, being, um, um, I guess, uh, assistance in uh, Momia's uh, case. Um, with the denial of medical treatment, you know, and um, hepatitis is is a communicable disease. And I found some articles that were saying, like, you know, they're choosing to let, you know, this this uh, virus to go untreated among inmates when, you know, again, there are treatments available. And so this also speaks to their human rights. You know, and, and you're affecting, I mean, you're putting the guards in danger, you're putting the healthcare workers in danger, you're putting your staff employees in danger, and, and of course, the prisoners themselves. Um, this is like willful neglect, and, and I, I don't know, sis, uh, I couldn't cite any international laws, but I'm sure there are some human rights treaties uh, that apply to, uh, you know, withholding medical treatment, and I mean, it's like, it's like they're trying to create a uh, endemic uh, in the prison if one doesn't already right. exist. Right. So uh, we're going to listen to about maybe it's an hour long and I, I link to it. So obviously we can't listen to the whole thing. So we'll say that for last and we'll listen to about maybe 20, 30 minutes of it. But um, also um, have the um, new political prisoner radio mix of, Featuring the long voice of Mamiya Abu-Jamal, he's touching on several subjects in his prison radio commentaries, Again, you can, which you can find that and other prisoners uh, speaking out, uh, prisonradio.org. So uh, we put together the political pr prisoner radio mix for November the 22nd. You'll, uh, you'll be hearing it for the first time tonight on political prisoner radio uh he also talks about fear-mongering banning syrian refugees politics and finance so looking forward to that uh there's no political prisoners with birthdays this week but um uh, sister media uh do we want to go ahead and share some of the updates from our political prisoner radio facebook page which people can find on facebook by just in their search engine putting the name of this program political prisoner radio of course uh, did you want to share any of those updates if you have access? Um, sure. Um, whose case did you want to start off with? Uh, you could just go down the line of the uh, timeline on Political Prisoner Radio on Facebook. Just posted some okay. stuff there today. I, I noticed uh -huh. a couple of events. Okay. Yeah, um, I guess the first case that I wanted to speak on um, was that of uh, Leonard Peltier and that um, some of Leonard's work was curated into an art exhibit of which the FBI has uh, tried to make a very big stink about um, his uh, work and trying to get his artwork pulled out of um, an exhibit, which, I mean, it's, completely, it's absolutely ridiculous. 
you know, that um, that the FBI would go after, um, you know, artwork um, just specifically because of where um, who who did the artwork. Yeah, I read that it was some retired FBI agents. Uh, not act, they, they weren't active, but uh, just retired, and of course, probably still active in the union and the lodges and and all that stuff. But yeah, uh, total violation of First Amendment uh, speech rights. And I thought that was already settled. Uh, didn't Pennsylvania try to take away the voice of Momia? Well, remember, I remember reporting on that, and wasn't that defeated? Or where you remember that case and where it stands now? Cause it was trying to shut down prison radio and whatnot, and and the prisoners' right, voices right, through that platform. Right, and that's—I mean—that's a good example. Like that's something totally different, um, but it's still. You First know, Amendment speech are, right, have, uh, right. It's yeah, still being, it's still taking away somebody's you know voice, whether it is speech or whether it is their artistic interpretation. Right, and these were from what I saw, uh, Sister Mijo. These weren't even political paintings. These were like just regular paintings, right. you know, like right. of wilderness or nature. Or something like that, right. and and Leonard's just the artist, and these uh, FBI right. agents, and and so yeah, again, you know, like I've stated on other programs, the law enforcers are not there to uh, uh, enforce the constitutional rights of anyone, you know. So, anything else? Um. So we had mentioned. Albert Woodfox. Um, this past week, I was actually part of a uh, a, a live Google Hangout uh, chat, and we spoke about solitary confinement. Um, it was myself um, and three other activists and organizers um, speaking on the issue, and we talked about the ongoing um, issues of Islamophobia spreading across the United States and, uh, you know, race and Islamophobia being a key factor in uh, the solitary confinement of um, our prisoners and in a lot of cases, um, people not even knowing about um, some prisoners because of, uh, you know, their their ethnicity or um not knowing um you know just just individuals being held absolutely like incommunicado and they're yeah, being gag orders on various different cases disappeared is is what i've right. heard it referred to in mainstream media they right. disappeared these people snatched them right. up yeah so yeah disappear them into the system bowels of the beast right Right, and I think that it's that it's important that that we recognize those that you know that we're not even aware of that we don't like. There are families out here who are told that they can't even speak. You know, there's gag orders on cases. You know that that we don't even know about. You know, people. You know who. You know have uh, dual citizenships from you know the United States or you know other countries that that we don't hear about so you know I just wanted to bring that up you know to everybody's attention and to 
you know, recognize that there are many, you know, nameless people, you know, that are being disappeared by the U.S. government. Well, before we go to the political uh, prisoner radio mix for November 22nd, uh, here's some news that you can find on our timeline. Again, it's facebook.com slash political prisoner radio. But of course, on Black Talk Radio Network, we have our broadcast page there. You can access the podcast, subscribe, and get updates of upcoming programs as well as, you know, uh, podcasts. And so, but for, on our Facebook page, uh, you will find um, this bit of news. Uh, this comes from Nate Buckley. This was just sent out today. Uh, U.S. held political prisoner Robert Self Hayes said he's doing much better and is in good spirits. Uh, the uh, the medical took a CAT scan of his heart, lungs, blood, and blood tests. Uh, said that they said that there was no heart problem or lung infection. He said it was just a buildup of fluids. I asked why the fluids built up, but he said the man adjusted. The main adjustment they gave was to his diabetes treatment. They changed his medication and amount. They put him on anti-clotting meds because he was just laying down in the hospital for the entire week, week, so his breath is much better, but he has to build up to walking longer distances and exerting himself again because small amounts of exertion still put him out. But he has decided to start building up strength with the way he feels now. You can read the rest of that. Uh, you can also uh, get his address so that you can write to Brother uh, Robert Self Hayes, who's in the Sullivan Correctional Facility in Fallsburg, uh, New York. Um, also, there is a link to a fundraiser campaign uh, for him. Um, that again is on Political Prisoner Radio on Facebook. New Yorkers protested to stop the G4S before global UN dropped G4S week of action. So on Friday, uh, this was just two days ago, New Yorkers gathered outside the offices of G4S. The British-Danish security conglomerate subject to a global boycott called for its occupation and apartheid profiteering. Um, we talked about this on our program, New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, um, they operate uh, private prisons as well, and they're like one of the largest employers in Africa. A lot of people don't know this on the homeland of Africa. Uh, the largest employer is is uh, employing Africans to enslave other Africans. So it's slavery still happening on the continent. G4S is a big part of that. They're talking about apartheid and occupation here. Uh, but they're also involved in what we uh, know as and call uh, 21st century slavery and human trafficking. So it goes on. So, uh, yeah, again, two days ago, let me see. Um, they are also accused of including and providing security systems and control rooms for Israeli prisons, which hold Palestinian political prisoners and equipping the Israeli police training centers that trains the police attacking Palestinians in Jerusalem and at Al-Asqua Mosque. Uh, Samadun, New York, has been holding weekly protests outside the New York G4S offers, yeah, demanding a boycott and distributing leaflets with information on G4S activity. So we'll definitely cover uh, this story and, and give some updates on um, 
on New Abolitionist Radio because this is uh, right along the uh, lines of what we try to focus on. Again, this is legalized 21st century global uh, slavery and human trafficking, ain't mass incarceration. You can call it many different names, but it's it really all boils down to uh, one real uh, root cause, and that's just slavery, slavery, capitalist slavery at, at that. Um, so let me see. I think the last one, the last thing coming up on December the sixth on a Sunday, uh, send love through the walls, 2015. Uh, this will be held at uh, on Sunday, December the 6th, 4 o'clock to 8 o'clock p.m. It will be in uh, 263 Eastern Parkway, apartment 5D, uh, phone number 718-783-8141. The cost is free, uh, but donations are accepted. And what many prisoners have told us is their favorite event of the year, Resistance in Brooklyn and NYC Anarchist. Black Cross again join forces to bring you the annual holiday card writing party for U.S. held political prisoners, prisoners of war, and prisoners of conscience. This event is always a lot of fun. The food outstanding, uh, the camaraderie uh, lively, and the handmade cars flat out amazing. This year will be no different. So plan to bring your friends, your creativity, and a healthy appetite. We'll have updates on the political prisoners and prisoner war campaigns as well as paints, markers, crayons, and envelopes. So you can get uh, directions for those that are in the New York uh, area. You can get uh, more information there. They are there. We've also linked to their Facebook event. That again is uh, coming up uh, Sunday, December the 6th, and love through the walls 2015. All right, we're going to... Um, Take a station ID. Um, also, too, okay. uh, before we do that, um, I just wanted to mention um, the uh, political prisoner calendar. Um, if uh, some of our listeners are um, interested, um, that they should. Um, uh, it should be uh, available through. Um, yeah, it's uh, sending the love through the walls flyer, and the calendar is uh, cert at certaindays.org. C-E-R-T-A-I-N-D-A-Y-S dot O-R-G. Certaindays.org. Right. All right. Thank they you. They should order. Um, it's the Certain Days 2016 internationalism solidarity and global struggle um calendar of freedom for um political prisoners All right so w before um what we're going to do is take a station identification break um because we have a lot of information to give out tonight uh that's why i haven't given out the phone number so we don't really have time to uh take any phone calls uh lotus place radio coming up at 10 o'clock p.m eastern eastern right here on black talk radio uh, network digital uh, black new black media for the uh, new millennium so um, yeah we're going to uh, then come and play the political prisoner radio mix again featuring Momia Abu-Jamal uh, thanks to the work of prison radio and helping uh, prisoners uh, practice journalism from behind the walls and he has some uh, some commentary so we'll go to that political prison radio mix and then uh, we will uh, play the conference from the again what is the uh, name of this group uh, 
Healthcare Workers Union. Uh, yeah, 1199 Healthcare Workers Union in New York. And uh, then uh, right before we transition to the next program, of course, uh, we'll say our good nights to you and uh, give our thanks and salutes uh, to Political Prisoners and Prisoners of War. You're listening to Political Prisoner Radio. My name is Scotty. Ryan Shotgun and Sister Amigo. We broadcast this program every Sunday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time right here on Black Talk Radio Network. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Political masters, financial servants. Some call it the silly season. But if the national presidential elections are a measure, then we can't speak of seasons, but of years, for the time spent on this endeavor is extensive. And it's a multi-million dollar business. Indeed, billions are spent. While most of this money goes to the media industry, some candidates amass great fortunes to wield as cudgels to discourage adversaries, as in, look at all the money I've got. Media, driven by their own profit motives, grants immediate credibility to a candidate who has a boatload of money. So money is the measure of a candidate, not one's ideas. Now, after the odious decision in Citizens United, a candidate can run a campaign based on the support of one person, that is, one rich person. Who needs democracy when you have a rich sugar daddy? Also, the debates we've been seeing are unworthy of the name. Debates are arguments or discussions involving public policy. The so-called debates we see are hurried sound bites meant to titillate audiences and snatch some face time with media. It argues nothing and explains less. It is political entertainment and used by media to hype coverage to boost ratings. It is a circle of emptiness. Journalist scholar Chris Hedges would describe these so-called debates as the elevation of spectacle above any real relationship to real life or the problems faced daily by real people. No matter who gets elected, ask yourself one question. Is this person responsive to the average citizen or to those on Wall Street? We know the answer. The intimate embrace by the political class of the moneyed class has served to bypass the illusions of democracy. One serves the other. One buys the other. One owns the other. And the people are becoming increasingly irrelevant. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. States of fear. Within hours of the terror strikes in Paris, governors representing nearly half the United States, 23 states in all, bum-rushed the mic to announce that they're issuing orders to ban refugees from Syria into their states. Is it mere coincidence that 22 of them are Republican governors? I think not. For what political party best exploits fear for its own political gain? 
How many millions of people still believe that U.S. President Barack Obama is a secret Muslim? Political fear is so deep that it doesn't matter how many Muslims he bombs by drone, nor how many Bibles he carries. He's a secret Muslim. Incredible. To be sure, this is not a new phenomenon. Back in the 1920s, millions came to the U.S., but Congress set strict limits for Africans, Asians, Slavs, Jews, and Italians. The favored immigrant was from England or Northern Europe. Those perceived as darker people were severely limited. It was the politics of fear then. It's the politics of fear now. Those who are most at risk from a mad insurgency birthed by U.S., British, Pakistani, and Saudi intelligence, those forces that armed, trained, formed, and indoctrinated anti-Soviet groups like Al-Qaeda are being banned and barred from immigration to the U.S. Amazing. The politics of fear brew the pots of paranoia in people. It closes minds. And as Iraq proved, it opened the door to more and more disaster. From imprisoned nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to Black Talk Radio Network. Dot com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. And welcome back to Political Prisoner Radio. Again, today's date is November 22nd, 2015, a Sunday evening and just to give you an introduction of the clip that I'm about to play so again I'm re-airing a portion of a press conference that took place at 1199 Healthcare Workers Union in New York uh, it was concerning prisoners hepatitis C and the refusal of prison administrators to provide medical treatment Hep hepatitis C is a communicable disease that prisons are choosing to let spread among inmates. The Abolitionist Law Center argues that health care in a healthy environment is a human right for prisoners and non-prisoners alike. Attorney Brad Groh is representing political prisoner Momia Abu-Jamal in his lawsuit against the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections with it which is withholding treatment from him for hepatitis C. The case could have an impact on prisoners health care rights across the united states um let me see yeah so yeah but these are a, a group of healthcare workers uh, who have a union uh in new york and uh they're talking about you know also their right you know uh to not be uh, exposed to communicable diseases that are easily treated so um yeah let's go ahead and roll that clip here let me see where it's that here it is Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for coming. My name is Joe Piet. I'm a retired postal worker and still a union member with the National Association of Letter Carriers. 
as a member of the International Action Center in Philadelphia. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us here today. There are about 170 million people chronically infected with the Hep C virus in the world today. The Asia-Pacific region bears the highest burden, but without access to affordable treatment, between 350,000 to 500,000 people die of liver disease caused by HCV every year. Like in the rest of the world, in the U.S., this silent epidemic has a disproportionate impact on impoverished communities and people of color. While African Americans comprise about 13% of the U.S. population, they represent 25% of all Hep C cases. For black Americans aged 45 to 65, Hep C-related chronic liver disease is the leading cause of death. Up to 43% of all people infected with Hep C pass through a correctional facility. That's one of the reasons why prisoners in Kentucky, Minnesota, Massachusetts, and other states have initiated lawsuits demanding access to Hep C medicine. Illinois and New York are among the few states that provide some access to HCV treatment. We are here today about the 10,000 men and women, including Mumi Abu-Jamal, being held in Pennsylvania's prisons who have HCV. Mumia is a political prisoner falsely accused in the 1981 death of a Philadelphia cop. He was sentenced to death by the people's movement led by many of the people in this room were able to get him off death row. Even though he should be free, he is being forced to serve a life sentence in prison instead. In other words, it's still a death sentence, just slower. Speakers tonight will describe his health status which, if not treated, will lead to his premature death, a death sentence by medical neglect. A month ago, during a conference call meeting with Pennsylvania State Representative Vanessa Brown, we learned that the Department of Corrections lacked any protocols, a standard set of rules, for testing and treating prisoners exhibiting symptoms of HCV. The DOC, however, was in the process of writing protocols and we saw this as an opportunity, a window of opportunity, for concerned people to pressure the state to come up with strong rules mandating the best treatment for HCV-infected prisoners. The labor group within the group I'm in, the IAC and Workers World, uh, represented today by Johnny Stevens, who's behind the mic, he should be here. He's behind that camera there. <laughs> uh, Sue Davis and myself, we came up with the idea of a campaign appealing to health care providers. It demands that the governor, the Department of Health, and the Department of Corrections in Pennsylvania come up with a good plan to treat not only Mumia Abu-Jamal, but all prisoners as needed with the new HCV drugs that have proven effective in over 90% of cases. In coalition with the International Concerned Family and Friends of Mumia Abu-Jamal and the Free Mumia Abu-Jamal Coalition of New York City, over 70 healthcare providers signed that appeal. 
And we have some on the table back there. It's in the press packet. We followed that up with an online petition that anyone could sign. And over 750 of those signed petitions have been sent to state officials in Pennsylvania. Today's event is the next step in continuing the campaign to put pressure on Pennsylvania officials to do the right thing. Thank you. Our first speaker, uh, who is the one who has arranged for us to have this press conference at 1199, the, the foremost health care union in New York City. Oh, I should mention, I'm a member of the National Writers Union, United Auto Workers, 1981, and I am the sponsor of a resolution that was passed unanimously by my union to... Uh, demand immediate treatment for Mamiya Abu-Jamal, and I must admit that I think that helped kickstart this whole campaign. So I'm very, I'm very pleased about that. But it also reinforces the union connection because Mamiya has been an honorary member of the National Writers Union since 1995. So now I have the great pleasure of introducing Estela Vasquez, Executive Vice President of local 1199 SEIU United Healthcare Workers East, Estella. Good morning, buenos dias, and welcome to 1199. Our house is your house. In this union, we pride ourselves of our long history since this union was founded in 1932 of aligning ourselves with progressive justice, progressive struggles, whether it was the civil rights movement in the 1960s, the anti-war movement, solidarity with Cuba, but most important, for the, over 25 years, 1199 has been in full support of the freedom for Mumia Abu Jamal, and I proudly can say today that we continue that tradition of saying, free Mumia, free Mumia. We are here today to join our voices to um, the people here sitting at, at the table at this press conference, and at the same time with many other healthcare workers around the country that have called on the Pennsylvania prison authorities and the governor and other authorities in the state of Pennsylvania to demand that the criminal neglect of Mumia stops immediately. We call on everyone in this city. We call on our members to join the vo our voices to denounce what the state of Pennsylvania is doing. The same way the years ago, in the early 90s, the outcry of the world was able to free Nelson Mandela from the jails. We're going to continue that outcry and demand freedom for Mumia. But most important, we now demand humane medical treatment for Mumia. Stop the assassination by medical neglect. Mumia must receive medical care. Thank you. Yeah. Let's welcome Pam African. On the move, family. On the move. Okay, um, I just come off a tour from the uh, West Coast on uh, on behalf of Mumia, 
and the medical condition and the fact that, you know, we not only need to deal with the medical, but the fact that Mumia is innocent and he should be brought home so that we can take care of him. And uh, some of the best doctors have stepped up, stepped forward. Um, Brother Bob Harris, and uh, who is a former Panther, uh, which you'll be hearing from um, a little bit later. The tour that I was on was to bring visibility. And uh, because we have a great worldwide internet, email, twit, tweeter, you know, um, system set up for Mumia. And, uh, but what we also need to do is have street visibility because this government is shaking from what it is that they know. But people on the outside who is not on the internet, who doesn't do emails, also need to know and all the numbers that we have. So that's what we're stepping up, high visibility on behalf of Mumia. And I'm not going to take long because we have people who have a lot of good information you know, to um, get Mumia great medical help. One of the things that we found out from State Representative Vanessa Brown that there is at this point one person in the state of Pennsylvania that is now getting hepatitis C treatment. So with that, and uh, we're hoping that soon Mumia will get it. So we got to keep the pressure on, on the um, electronic means and in the streets up in their face. Thank you. Thank you, and now I have the pleasure of introducing Suzanne Ross. She's co-chair of the Freemamia Abu Jamal Coalition in New York City, and she's going to summarize points from a 10-page statement uh, produced by Dr. Joseph Harris, who is the head of Mamiya's medical uh, team and an expert on Hep C. Suzanne. Thank you, Sue, and greetings to everybody. I'm going to try to summarize uh, not only what uh, Dr. Joseph Harris said, but also Mumia's own affidavit on what happened to him. As part of the legal papers that the lawyers filed, they had an affidavit from Joseph Harris as the medical expert and from Mumia describing what he went through. Um, but first, I want to say a little bit about the context. Um, again, we have to say every single time we speak about this, that the state of Pennsylvania <clears throat> and whoever else in this country, behind the scenes, over the scenes, or whatever, who have been uh, trying to make sure that Mumia was silenced and dead for years and years and years, tried every trick possible including, as you all know, the outrageous trial that was hardly a trial, and then finally getting him, uh, being forced to have him removed from death row and brought into population, then has been forced to figure out plan C or plan D or whatever. You know how many times they tried to kill Fidel Castro? Well, they're not going to succeed in killing Mumia. They're not going to succeed in killing Mumia. And we're going to make sure that he gets the medical care he deserves and ultimately is freed. So that's the context. So the history of the medical treatment by the, that Mumia has gotten, treatment in quotes, over the past year is shocking 
in the sense only if you are used to this and take it for granted that this is how the Department of Corrections treats people would you not be shocked. Anybody who does not understand the system would look and say, this can't be happening in the United States. Uh, isn't there someone you can go complain about this to? People often say, say this to me. Isn't there someone you can appeal to? Um, so it's a history of ignorance, incompetence, and malevolence. Mumia started experiencing um, the fundamental problem he's living with. Other things have developed partly through the incompetence and the negligence. So, um, oh, thank you. Um, if I wander away and you can't hear me, please let me know. Um, the fundamental problem he's been dealing with for months, uh, for over a year now, since about May of 2014, is this horrendous skin problem, which has... Uh, at one point turned his skin from his medium brown colored skin to black. Several of us looking at it thought that he looked like he had been radiated. This is before we heard this whole analysis of the hep C treatment and the seriousness what hep C can really cause. But still, we never take that of our consciousness. We never forget what this government did with Don Pedro Albizu Campos and radiated him to death. So we know that that's possible. And we can't ignore that, which is one of the reasons that even if they gave Mumia the drugs he needed, we want him out because, one, he's innocent, and, two, they're going to figure out another way to try to kill him. So when Mumia first experienced this terrible itching, he um, tried to – he didn't say anything to anybody about it, never complained to us. As far as I know, family, friends, supporters – but he eventually went to the infirmary. They gave him some kind of cream. It helped him for a while. It came back. It never really helped him. It got worse and worse. And by the summer, um, he began to find it more and more intolerable. And by the beginning of 2015, of this year, he began telling us, this is horrendous. I can't live with this. And um, at that point, uh, the rash of his skin had covered his entire body, his legs, his arms, his legs were swollen. He had lost um, somewhere over 50, maybe even 70 pounds, and he looked really bad. For those of us who've seen him for many years, it was shocking. Each time we saw him, he looked worse. And he said he hardly was able to sleep at that time because the itching was so bad, he found himself waking up and scratching his skin to the point of bleeding. And he, his skin was really oozing. So this is not a minor itching. Itching really understates the, the severity of the problem. And the fact that the prison system took it so lightly and just gave him casually this drug, that drug, which in fact may have contributed to his development, as many of you know. And by the way, this is being live streamed, so I'm trying to repeat some of this so that audiences around the world know the background. Many of you are familiar with this, so forgive my repetition if you've heard it before. By February, he wrote, I received a letter from him that I will never forget till the day I die, because it's like a, somebody writing a letter on his deathbed, describing what's happening to him and thinking that they may be trying to kill him, and we should have a record of what happened. So he described going to the infirmary, what they gave him, what they did, how sick he was, and so on and so on. This was sometime in February of this year. That was scary. He finally went to the infirmary uh, when he was sick, and the infirmary took blood tests, and these so-called doctors, you know, and I can't help but always think of the Nazi doctors and what their job was. 
that's, I'm a child of World War II, and I never forget the Mengalese and his associates. So when I hear what the doctors did with the smiling faces to Mumia, they did not tell him that his blood sugar had gone way up high. He had no idea that he had developed diabetes, probably through the steroids and so on that he had been given, though now there's a theory that it's also related to the hep C. Dr. Harris talks about that. I'll mention that later. So on May, March 30th, he collapsed, and um, his blood sugar was very high in the 500s and was collapsed. was rushed to a hospital where they gave him insulin and treated him for the diabetes. They sent him home. They sent him back to the prison two days later into general population. Two days later, after he nearly died, this man was so sick he made no sense. He couldn't talk. He couldn't, he couldn't walk. They put him back in the general prison population. And for the first time, he knew he had diabetes. And he was given insulin, and he was given a so supposedly modified di diet, not very impressive, um, and then got sick all over again. There he was back in general population, not getting treatment. And soon enough, he was brought back, rushed again to, um, on March 31st, uh, less than a month later, he was rushed back to a different hospital, much better one, that really did extensive tests. And because there was pressure on them, by this time, let me say, we were not silent. We were not silent. The day after he collapsed, we had a press conference up at the hospital where he was. His family was there. Several of his supporters were there. And there was a press conference, which actually got some local coverage. <clears throat> we had demonstrations at the Department of Corrections. We had demonstrations at Mahanoy Prison. We even went to the governor's mansion, Rotunda, in, and his home in, um, in um, Harrisburg. They did not stop hearing, getting phone calls from all over the world, nonstop phone calls. They complained to us. Uh, at one point when they had this tough security around Mumia where he couldn't talk, see anybody, I think, when he was so sick, <clears throat> somebody, I think the lawyers may have said it, or somebody told me that they, calling the Department of Corrections, said, why do you need this level of security? They said, well, these people even went to the governor's office. Yeah. As though it was something outrageous that we went to exercise our rights to protest an injustice. All this time, there has been no diagnosis by the Department of Corrections. This is the outrage. No diagnosis. They treat symptom after symptom, then go through the motions of all these tests, but no diagnosis. of. They said it was eczema and psoriasis. Now, eczema and psoriasis, you know, do not, does not, rarely has this level of symptomatology, rarely. It became uh, obvious that we would never, never get any, con any sense, sensible treatment plan from the Department of Corrections. And of course we were demanding that he be released to us. We were demanding that our own doctors, Mumia's, doctors of Mumia's choosing, be allowed to see him and treat him. They refused that. Wadia Jamal, Mumia's wife, finally said one day, they're killing my husband, somebody, some doctor, go and see him. So we asked Joseph Harris to see him in the visiting room. He was not able to see him privately as a physician is supposed to get that right, but he saw him in the visiting room, and that was really the breakthrough. And that shows when if you have competent, caring, competent medical care, this could have been dealt with way, way earlier and did not have to come to this point 
unless they really wanted to kill Mumia. I can't say it more politely than that. When Joseph Harris went to see him, he found the following. He was crystal clear. It was such a relief to have a doctor see him and actually venture, you know, give, put forward an, a theory, a diagnosis, and a treatment plan. It was the first one we had seen. They were going to do 8,000 more tests that meant nothing and just to, you know, appease us, but that was not going to address the real problem. So this is what Dr. Harris found at the time. He said, all of the symptoms being experienced by Mr. Abu-Jamal are highly likely to be manifestations of the active, untreated hepatitis C infection. All indications are that Mumia got this infection when he was shot, when he was arrested in 1981 at the time of the, the crime scene. You know, he was nearly, nearly killed then, as you'll recall. He nearly died then. When he got the blood transfusions that he needed, he probably contracted the, this. So he has this, he's had this virus for a long time. And it was picked up by the prison authorities in uh, 2012 when he was, uh, I mean, they probably knew before, but Mumia found out about it when he was transferred from death row to general population and they did all these tests and he saw the, the results. God forbid anybody should have investigated this or checked this further, whether in the prison itself or with, with all this testing that they were doing. Finally, we, uh, our doctors, lawyers were pushing for the hepatitis C workup and they found that he did have an active virus. Now, the prison is saying that it's not that high a viral load that he has, but that is so much BS because anybody who knows anything, and they obviously don't or choose not to, knows that viral load is not the only measure of the extent and sickness of a hepatitis C. So in this case, Dr. Harris thought that this was the, the skin disease that he showed was particularly likely to be something called necrolytic acryl arrhythma. And though it's a relatively rare disorder, it typically involves black patients with a skin, a skin rash like Mumia's and that responds very minimally to the usual treatments for skin problems. It is a skin reflection of the hepatitis C. And this was Joe Harris's assessment. To give proper tribute to Joe and how brilliant his assessment was without even being able to see Mumia in a private circumstance, he immediately did the research in other countries as well. Being a black doctor who had a history with Doctors Without Borders, he did not limit himself to research in this country. And he found that there had been black Egyptians, men, who had had very, very similar pattern to Mumia's. A major breakthrough. Finally, a real theory. A major, major breakthrough. He then also said that the other symptoms that Mumia was experiencing would probably be cured if he were given this new miracle drug that many of us, some of us in this room are actually taking. You'll hear from Kamau in a minute who's taken and has completed a whole treatment plan. An antiviral medication that's over 90% effective and is really a major breakthrough in the treatment of hepatitis C because the previous treatments were quite inadequate, very painful, and uh, not very effective. Dr. Harris further said that the skin condition would be alleviated but not cured if Mumia were given zinc and prototopic cream. Now, for those who think that this is only a question of money, let me say very clearly that zinc you can buy in the drugstore for about $5. The prototopic cream is not expensive. They have refused to give Mumia this treatment that would relieve his discomfort. 
They had refused to give it to him. So if they're so concerned about money, why not say, okay, we'll give him this? It's, that is an indication of the agenda not being just about money. And as much as we live in a capitalist society, we should also always remember that we also live in a fascist society. His conclusion is that anticipating what the Department of Corrections would say, he's not a top priority because he doesn't have a high viral load and so on and so on. He's, Dr. Harris says, Mumia Abu-Jamal is experiencing extrahepatic symptoms, things outside of the liver. His symptoms are not restricted. Even though the cause is from the liver, the symptoms are not restricted to the liver. Symptoms caused by hepatitis C. He falls within the highest priority of persons that should be treated with this new antiviral medication because of the possibility of treating all these other symptoms. In other words, his problems are much more diverse in a negative way and extensive. Finally, he says something I think that mo most of us know, that chronic hepatitis C are serious long-term illnesses that can last throughout a person's life. Hepatitis C is the leading cause of cirrhosis and liver cancer and is the most common cause of liver trans transplants. Chronic hepatitis C infection can manifest itself outside the liver, which these doctors in the DOC, excuse me again, doctors in quotes, and skin rashes, eczema, often accompanied by severe and painful itching, are not uncommon. Mumi also had anemia, which Dr. Harris also says can be related to the hepatitis C, and the diabetes that he developed, which we thought came partly from the steroids, he's saying could have definitely been related to the hepatitis C as well. As soon as we had that in writing, our battle moved. Demand that treatment now. And that's what we're in the middle of today, and that's what today is about. And you know what? We're going to win. That's right. Thank you, Suzanne. The next speaker is a very good friend of mine. He's a fellow activist in Philadelphia, and uh, his name is Kamal uh, Bektemba. He's speaking because he just went through the whole treatment for Hep C and is completely cured now. And it wants to talk about how how that happened. I just got finished taking the medicine, and I'm supposed to be completely cured according to all the tests that's been given to me. I first uh, contacted uh, this disease back in, I believe, 1962 when I came home from prison. You know, I was uh, coming up, I was very inquisitive, experimenting with alcohol, experimenting with drugs, you know, just to, I ain't really know any much about it, but I was experimenting. And that's how I believe I contacted it. One day back in 62, I went to get some blood. I tried to give some blood because when you get blood, they will give you like 15 or $20 or whatever. And I was trying to get some wine money, money together at the time. So, but they told me, uh, they rejected it. And they told me that there was something wrong with my blood. So I believe that's when I first contacted them, experimenting with taking heroin with a couple of friends that I knew at the time. I wasn't really treated for it. I didn't know, they didn't tell me what it was at that time. So I found out back in 2000 through my wife's doctor, he told me that I had hepatitis C. And so at that time, they was telling me that uh, they wanted me to, they wanted to treat me then, but I didn't want to be treated because uh, because of the side effects. They say, you know, you'll be tired and different things. And I'm working at the time. I said, well, I can't work if it's going to take all my energy away from me. You know, so I rejected it. 
you know, based on the side effects. But um, then they recently they came out with this new medicine. The doctors told me about it, and they want they thought I'd be a good candidate to take it. So I did it, and I'm I, so you gotta take the pills for three months. I did that, and I'm I'm cured. Wow. You know, of course, this press conference is primarily descending from the tribes of Africa, inspired by the great black leaders. Just going to do it for us here tonight on Political Prisoner Radio. Uh, we will be back on air. Our next live stream, of course, will be next Sunday at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Just want to say uh, thank you to all of those uh, who struggle on behalf of our political prisoners. Uh, definitely got to keep them on our minds. And at the forefront, I like to see them a, a bigger part of the freedom movements that I see taking place across America today. Got to, uh, at some point, uh, get the, the powers to be to address the release of our political prisoners. So peace and blessings to all y'all be safe behind these enemy lines. Thank you.